the average human walking around the street or listening to this podcast has uh, their body makes 10,000 genetic mistakes every single day. Every 24 hours, 10,000 mistakes. Each of those mistakes can turn into a microscopic cancer. Fortunately, they don't, but every now and then a few will actually stick around as a little microscopic cancer. And the only reason that the cancer doesn't grow up to kill you is because it doesn't have a blood supply, so it can't grow, no oxygen, no nutrients. And then your immune system will find it and wipe it out so that like a pimple, that is the man himself, Dr. Lee Team, and you are listening to the Epic Table Podcast. Hello, wonderful people. I am personally still coming off such a high after the weekend's marathon. Thank you to all of you who have been so supportive, reaching out, just sharing your absolute claps, applause, and just overall happiness towards uh, what the team and I and many thousand other runners were able to achieve and I also want to make sure people know that it wasn't just the New York City Marathon that was on on the weekend the LA Marathon was going on as well um, you know amongst many others so it was a wonderful achievement I've now run three and I can tell you that was the funnest one I've ever had I was I was ecstatic I'm, I'm yelling at the crowd I'm pumping them up they're pumping me up it was honestly one of the coolest days and um, as soon as it was over, I knew straight away, I'm like, I cannot wait for next year already. So I do have another one coming up in Austin uh, early next year. But, uh, you know, looking forward to New York City already. And again, thank you to all your support. If you want to, you can still donate by going to cityharvest.org uh, to help, obviously, number one, help feed people those uh, in need. One in five New Yorkers don't know where their next meal is coming from. And the other thing is... We help remove food waste, which 40% of food goes to waste, uh, particularly around New York City, which can be quite an alarming start when you think about it. Team, it's uh, this week I'm off to Austin. I'll be covering some of the stuff that we're doing at HBLT Austin with Brian Mazar, uh, the 10,000 team as well. I know a lot of you um, are interested in, in recovery after a marathon. So just so you know, I've been drinking plenty of water, still keeping up the sodium, which I hope uh, all of you are as well. We start to taper that off probably after five days or so. Now it sounds weird, but given the fact of how much your body has been you know, exhausted of its typical fluid amounts, it's um, it's okay to kind of you know teeter that one in as well. So I'll be doing that. I'm actually surprisingly feeling pretty good. You know, you guys are listening to this on a Wednesday onward. And by then, my body feels great. You know, I, I could probably go for a good 10 miles or 16K run, um, which is surprising. Just, uh, But at the same time, not, given how much attention we paid to recovery and active and looked after our body. So the compression boots are working, the Theragun's being epic, but most importantly, nutrition, hydration have been on point. So just to give a little summation, uh, after the marathon... I, uh, along with a lot of others, just kept active. Uh, it's just like little walking efforts. Walking downstairs can be a little bit of a struggle, but I feel after doing such a thing, it was it was pretty amazing just to kind of keep moving, uh, keep the fluids up, um, get a light little massage in when you can, maybe some hot and cold therapy and compression boots as well. And that's definitely going to help you on your way to keep more active. For those people doing your marathon for the first time, it's going to be more of a struggle, a bit more of a stimulus and something your body's not used to. But don't worry, you'll be able to walk down the stairs and sit in the toilet soon enough. This week's guest team, a, uh, I actually don't even know. I've got to check to see if he's run a marathon. Maybe I'll check in with him. Dr. William Lee is known for many things. He's a physician, researcher, and the man who wrote Eat to Beat Disease. Now, this this guy, and I'm going to call him a dude because he and I connected uh, not too long ago over a Zoe conference. We were, we were chatting, um, you know, together relating to food. Obviously, it's what we do. And he's got a, he's got a, you hear, pretty rich history when it comes to travels and understanding where food comes from and the I always say the romance behind it doesn't look at it from a science perspective as much as we initially would have thought given that he is a researcher but he's got a beautiful way of looking at food and it's uh it's something that I can definitely connect with but his work and the book itself in Eat to Beat Disease has led to you know helping many thousands upon thousands of people you know he really focuses on the things that would affect uh, potentially impact the cause of chronic illnesses. Um, we go into certain topics around uh, you know, cells and things such as microbiota uh, that you guys already know of, but think about this one. Have you heard of bioactives? Yes, we discuss a lot on this podcast about things like micronutrients, 
But what happens when they're activated and what is that activation taking shape? We go into that. It's really interesting. It was um, on this show when we recorded this, you know, we do a bit of research. And I didn't I didn't actually hear of this thing called bioactive. So we're going to go into that. It does sound a bit, I guess, uh, weedy, but it's actually much easier than we think to comprehend given that uh, he can actually explain it. So really excited for you to break down some of the things that we discuss in today's episode. It's not your episode where you think, oh, it's going to be around, you know, food and helps us. Um, look after ourselves that's a very generic topic I think you're going to get a lot out of this um, as I said we connected when we were discussing the wonderful world of Zoe that wonderful performance uh, you know personalized nutrition rather um, at home program so if you guys want to learn more about Zoe you can hit me up or just go to joinzoe.com I've used it it's amazing I now am able to help uh, many of you with the right recipes um, deficiencies if you will that lead to maybe some bad bugs uh, we want to lose those bad bugs and promote the good bugs and what I mean by this I'm talking about our gut microbiota so more on that later but uh, I'm really excited for you guys to strap on in for a wonderful conversation with Dr. William Lee himself he's uh, you know, he's just he's got a wealth of knowledge if you haven't picked up his book eat to be disease at least read the intro because it's pretty amazing all right team without saying any further bring on dr william lee mate welcome to the epic table podcast dr william lee it is an absolute honor to finally get you on the epic table podcast mate so welcome thank you dan it's a pleasure to speak with you mate you uh, just to put some context for everyone listening in you and i got to chat on a zoe open discussion a few weeks ago um and I always love connecting with people of your amazing brain power, but have, but then having a really good time. And I think we really did that. <laughs> we got to discuss. No, it was a good time, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was, a, it was a sweet and sour time with your eggplant dish. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, we cooked up an eggplant, sweet and sour eggplant. Uh, we talked about all the goodness around helping people in their, their gut microbiome, which, you know, you become known for in, in a lot of ways in the research that you've carried out, not specifically to, you know, gut microbiome in, in, you know, that's what you practice initially, but like your, your book eat to beat disease has been a profound positive impact on people worldwide. Um, you know, um, there's so many avenues to create the foundation for this discussion, Sam, my man, but like, did you realize the impact of this book and what it was going to have when you first like finished it, when you read it, were you like, yeah, this is going to be massive. No, actually I didn't because I didn't start out wanting to be an author at all. I, you know, I'm a physician, a, a medical doctor, internal medicine. I'm a, actually a real research scientist. So I've go back 30 years as what we call a vascular biologist. So I am in the lab and in the clinic studying the effects of our circulation and health mm-hmm. and in disease. And, um, and I run a nonprofit organization called the Angiogenesis Foundation. And the focus of my nonprofit organization, my charity is to find common denominators of disease and health and figuring out if we could identify these common denominators, pull the bow back uh, and send a single arrow through as many diseases at once as possible. And so I spent, you know, more than 20, some 25 years figuring out how to actually um, develop better treatments for cancer, diabetes and vision loss and healing. And uh, it's only, I only got into food and writing about food and talking about food like this um, after I realized with 41 um, new approved treatments for disease that, you know, frankly, treating the horse out of the barn, meaning treating a disease is okay, but much better would be to actually prevent the disease in the first place. And that would be using food. So when I set out to do this um, work and, and to write my book, the reason I wrote a book is because medicines that might be developed can take decades before they're realizable to help people's lives. But food is immediate. Something I tell you or your listener today, you can act on pretty much right away. And it's because of that immediacy, I think. I wrote the book, but I think that that's also the reason why it's popular. Yeah, 100%. And I know you, you know, in a lot of the work that we talk about in general in this space, we're, we're on, on, you know, quite honestly talking about chronic health issues as well. And I love the fact that in your book, you present, you present it in such a practical way where individuals at home can register the fact of what 
they don't have like try to eliminate the the idea of medicine and and using food as as a whole. But growing but growing up, were you someone who was a, a home cook? Did you cook with your family, or was this something you more recently, due to your research, uh, became interested in? You know, the answer is all the above. I uh, my parents are originally from China. And so I grew up really as a Chinese American. I, I grew up in America, and I ate all the junk food, sloppy Joe cafeteria food that every other kid in this country <laughs> um, actually uh, had. But I was always very well aware, um, probably as as you are, Dan. You know, coming from Australia, that you know there's a bigger world out there. And in that bigger world, not everybody does things the way that your school cafeteria does. So um, I think I kind of came into adulthood recognizing that there are lots of ways to skin the cat, uh, so to speak. Um, and, and, I, and I obviously, uh, have, you know, uh, I grew up really, really enjoying tasty, good, good quality food. Um, when I was in college, I... Um, uh, I was obviously, I was a pre-med, so I studied science, but I was very passionate about history and cultures. And so when, before I went to medical school, I did a gap year and I actually moved to the Mediterranean. I lived in Italy and Greece. And what I was interested in, and you got to remember, this is 1985 or so, a long time ago, long before the blue zones and all the other popular idea of the Mediterranean diet was, I mean, you know, back then, uh, people in America, for example, had no idea what a gnocchi was, for example. That nobody ever heard of a porcini mushroom, which everybody knows now. But um, I went there to actually study the role of food in culture and how it made a difference in people's health. And so I, I also had a you know, walk the walk um, uh, and not just talk to talk idea. I, I became very passionate about um, cooking, cuisine. Uh, local regional cuisines, uh, the value of what is grown nearby and seasonally eaten um, uh, in the Mediterranean. And then when I went to medical school, I studied um, lots of things, but one of them is I became specialized in his blood vessels. And I began to realize that many of these healthiest foods found in the Mediterranean and in Asia could have a beneficial effect in our circulation. And then I started to essentially collide my worlds together, the world of life science with, a for, with the world of food and cuisine, and because I also enjoy good food. I wouldn't say that I enjoy eating, so I don't, I don't shovel food in my face, but I really enjoy the, the idea and the taste of great food, great science, and great health. And, and that's really, I guess, the story of how I came into food and health. Yeah, it's so interesting when you position, particularly like I look at Italy as such a romantic relationship with food, right? And, I, I, you know, to put it real simply, like a lot of my job is taking the science and keeping that romance, right? Like that's what my mm -hmm. job is. Mm -hmm. For someone like yourself who's, you know, you, you're built upon research and your job is to really provide the evidence-based material, I'm very interested to understand if you went and did you know, these, these uh, studies abroad to understand the role of food in culture, what actual role that played in how you then position food while still being very evidence-based? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's, and it's a, actually a really great question because, um, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that I'm a scientist first. And as a scientist, um, you know, you sort of, um, what scientists do is they come up with observations. They ask questions. They try to answer the questions by designing experiments or research studies to see if we can actually uh, uncover a little bit more of the mystery, solve a little bit more of the mystery, dive a little bit deeper, peel the layer back on the onion just to kind of get into things a little bit more. And you never uncover the entire mystery. You never solve everything in one fell swoop. It's just layer by layer peeling the facts back and presenting the facts as we see them. And so for me, um, asking questions about how does food impact our health it led me directly to understand that there's no single superfood or super supplement like you sometimes see advertised on the internet and elsewhere. You know, that's marketing. And I, 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 I think it's fair game for anybody making a product to try to make their thing, their own product seem as good as possible. 
But uh, the reality is, is that there's when it comes to food and health, it's not just about the food or the supplement. It's really about how our body responds to what we put inside it. And we take something that is not going to be good for us and we insert it into our body. We consume it. Our body is going to react negatively. It's not going to respond well and we'll pay the price for it. On the other hand, we have these health defense systems in our body that if we feed our health defenses, our hardwired body's own natural ways of defending our health, if we feed that system, those systems, um, it activates our health, uh, our health in, a, in ways that actually help us um, uh, repel disease. And that's how I look at it is there's no single food. There's no single supplement. It's really, and there's no superfoods. It's really about the, the super body. And there's so many things out there that um, are part of this romantic culture you talk about. Every culture has its own romance with food, right? I mean, even if you go to Eastern European cultures, they have long story traditions with, you know, the the, the type of foods that they actually uh, make and eat themselves. But so does Asia. And with, you know, I want to say the other thing, which, you know, I'm sure your listeners would appreciate. Um, uh, on a show from a chef, which is, you know, what we actually call Mediterranean food. I mean, look, the Mediterranean's, you know, over a dozen countries. The food of Turkey is very different from the food of Portugal, which is very different than the food of Italy. And the food of Italy on the Western coast is different than the food of Italy on the Eastern coast or in the heartland or on an island. And so I think that this um, public uh, uh, appetite, so to speak, to simplify or maybe oversimplify I think uh, needs to be upended, and what I try to do is to bring sort of this glorious nature that we get to discover as researchers on how foods almost anywhere, you can actually do the research and find something good about different favorite foods from different regions around the world. Yeah, massive. It's uh, unbelievable. I think I do want to come back to the Mediterranean because it's you know mm-hmm. just from a just from a flavor profile and, and I guess uh, emotional connection that I have to it, it's something one of my favorites. But I, I do want to quickly just take a sidestep to to China because I know that's mm. obviously part of your heritage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm interested to know what type of Chinese food you grew up with. And it, it's a leading question because I've, I've been to China. Mm-hmm. I've had Chinese food in China. And I've also had Chinese food in the rest of the world. Mm. And it's remarkably different. Well, the first thing is that Chinese food in is just as we were discussing earlier, like Mediterranean food. It, it it's just referring to it like this Chinese food is a um, unfair, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say insulting, but it's a, it's definitely an uh, an unfair oversimplification because the food of the Sichuan province is very different than the food of Shanghai mm-hmm. uh, or the food of uh, northern China in Harbin or Beijing. And, you know, part of the, and I use the word glorious in a very specific way because something to celebrate, something that really lights you up, something that is amazing is how the foods of, of different parts of China um, are in fact dictated by their location their um what grows there the the temperature the 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 humidity the whether they're close to the water and what type of fish um uh are are in the the ocean or the sea versus rivers uh the cooking techniques are somewhat similar um but but the but the combinations and the preparations are extraordinarily different so i grew up really um eating a variety of different types of Chinese cuisine. So Cantonese cuisine is um, well known for its diversity and the uh, uh, sort of the locked in of its flavor. Um, I also grew up eating um, Shanghaiese food, which is uh, also remarkable, delicious, uh, sometimes prepared very differently than Cantonese food um, uh, and uh, and uses very different ingredients. I also grew up eating some Taiwanese food. Now, most people don't realize that Taiwan, which is filled with Chinese people that emigrated there uh, before the uh, before the communist revolution um, uh, were a upper class group of people, many with the military uh, from past governments that settled on essentially China's equivalent of Hawaii. So it's a tropical island. It, it was used to be a resort. And then an entire group uh, basically set up a settlement there and they began cooking their own kind of regional cuisine. So what was interesting is, is transplanting people from 
you know, the continent of Asia, you know, with China over to a little tiny island led to the development of its own local regional cuisine as well. So I, I think something amazing, um, although I, that's how I grew up, I'm, I'm continuously interested in seeing how in real time cuisines continue to evolve and change, even when we try to give it a simple name. Yeah, it is such a storyteller. And it bodes well for what you have in your surroundings, what you have access to, what you have availability to. Obviously, as time mm-hmm. and technology evolve, we, you know, particularly major cities, we probably get a little bit more, uh, I, I would say it becomes a bit more smoky in the sense of how we can actually understand where food comes from and, and whatnot because we have just access to abundant things. And But as, as you were referring to, the way that things are evolving in particular some of these rural parts is, is very interesting. I, I find it, uh, I like going back to when you said insulting, I, I don't think you're far off because I, I can't admittedly have a lot of Chinese food. If any, I don't think I often, I actually, it's, it's the one cuisine I do not eat out. Um, I cook at home if I do have it. And the reason for that, and I know you, you know, the answer to this is when I was in China, I had an abundance of plants with mm-hmm. minimal fried foods. Um, you know, the the rice actually was, this is the sh- surprising thing. I wasn't served rice. You had to ask for it. Oh, right. So but- I, I was in Guangzhou. I went to, I did go to Shanghai. I went to Beijing. I was in uh, Kunming too. I, I went to, like I, I would assume Shanghai and, uh, you know, Beijing, obviously a bit more <laughs> um, developed parts of the, the country, but Hongzhou and, and also Kuming were just beautiful locations. Mm-hmm. But what I, re- I looked at that trip and I'm just like, this astounds me that I then travel to uh, any other part of the world and go to like, you know, Chinatown or, you know, even just get Chinese food mm-hmm. and it's the Kung Pao chickens and the deep fried, you know, dumplings and, and all these things that you actually wouldn't find as prevalent in their original location so going back to what you were saying in terms of development i i yeah I, as i said i don't think you're too far off insulting but i think that's where i guess to an extent and maybe a negative one that we find that the combination of cultures and development of food through those cultures does happen uh, obviously you know we're seeing that right now as western society is engaging these uh these types of food yeah, no, that's that's absolutely correct. And and what you know, what's interesting is that um, media, television, the mm-hmm. internet, uh, 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 rapid transport like flying, planes, um, uh, the development of uh, restaurants, and the settlement of people from one country into a different country, mixed over and over and over again, does something quite remarkable, Dan. Which is it gives people in one region of the world, the opportunity to sample and savor the cuisine of another part of the world in a way that wasn't possible a hundred years ago, for one thing. But secondly, what and this is what I'm really interested in, is what happens over time when these uh, traditions start to mix and blend and the next generation of chefs come up uh, and decide that they want to actually combine different flavors together or provide combine different preparations or, or sauces or spices together to come up with their own uh, their own generation, their own nar- culinary narrative. And what I like to do, because you're the chef, not me, although I, I like to cook, the, the reality is, is that I think that I can, I can contribute something by um, identifying the healthful properties of ingredients and preparation techniques and storage um, and food doses and those kinds of more scientific and medical parts that frankly can stay in the background when it comes to getting together with a friend, uh, sitting together with your family and just enjoying a great meal. You don't need to spend time thinking about all the molecules and the science. Let, let the scientists do that like me. But what is useful is if you love your food and you have the right ingredients, you can love your health at the same time. I just love this. I absolutely love this. This is exactly, I love this because your relationship with, I think the deeper meaning of food is something that you wouldn't typically get from a researcher or scientist in this space. And I I really appreciate it, man. It's really, really cool. Let's, um, 
let's go back to that Mediterranean diet though. The one that's really exciting. And also at this point I go, damn those chefs, they go on TV and do those wacky things, the fusion recipes. God, just terrible. I know I'm actually part of them as I denote this. So um, taking a a time and opportunity to pay out on myself. Um, But Mediterranean diet, I think you said um, a really, really honest and true thing. Mediterranean is massive mm-hmm. <laughs> and it combines a range of different countries, cultures within countries, food regions within those respective cultures and, and countries. So we hear the term Mediterranean diet mm-hmm. and that's something that I guess is, uh, it, it, like, I love I loved the, the preface of it, but you know, in itself is we have to really identify that there's different specific regions and therefore foods and everything we have access to in the different parts of the Mediterranean diet. Now, with that in itself, as a researcher, how do you take those regions of a specific country into account when you are applying your conclusive report? Right. Well, I, you know, this is sort of um, how I approach Food. food is, you know, something that we eat to enjoy. Um, uh, but food, our food is composed of ingredients that are prepared, usually in combination and usually together. And as a scientist, you know, as a chef uh, or as a host or as a home cook, that's what we mostly see. You buy the ingredients, you put them together, you cook them up and you serve it um, uh, to yourself and your family and friends. But as a scientist, I, I have the kind of the privilege really to be able to and dive deeper and further. I can look at each of those ingredients separately. I can take a look at what's in like uh, a lemon or tomato. I can then take a look and say, well, what's inside a tomato? Um, what are the different components? Now there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of special molecules called um, bioactives. Um, you know, the, the nutritionists used to call them micronutrients. We know more. They're biologically active now. So there's, we, we can go more, way more than simply just calling them, you know, nutrients that help our cells function. We know exactly how some of these things actually work. So we can dive into the specific biochemicals that are found in foods. A great one would be like lycopene, which is a carotenoid found in tomatoes. Then you can compare across tomatoes. So which species of which varietal of tomato actually has the highest amount of the lycopene, as an example. But you go to the summer, to the market, to the farmer's market, New York, uh, Iowa, Los Angeles, almost anywhere you go in the summertime, you're, you're, you're presented with an abundance of tomatoes. So which one has the highest lycopene? If lycopene is good for you and lowers the, um, uh, your DNA damage as antioxidant, also has been shown in human studies to lower the risk of prostate cancer and even breast cancer. So, you know, we can actually take, we can go down to that level with the lycopene. Now, how can we define what lycopene does at the molecular level, the cellular level, and your organ system level? We can do that as well. So my worldview starts big, as big as the plate that you might serve a dish on, you know, your your spoon, fork, and knife or chopstick or whatever you eat with. Um, and then I'm actually able to kind of go deeper, 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 deeper to get to really kind of like a pretty granular molecular level. And so I don't, I tend not to think about Mediterranean diet, except in a referential way, right? Because the food of Greece, by the way, there's like, I think 20, 28 countries in the Mediterranean, I believe. Um, uh, let's see, 22 countries in the Mediterranean. And, you know, it, it ranges everything from uh, uh, Greece and Italy, which, you know, everybody generally tends to associate with the Mediterranean space, Spain. It goes to Malta and Israel and Jordan and Tunisia and Croatia, you know, all these other countries as well that we did this much more than, you know, meatballs and red sauce with spaghetti. So I, I try not to, except in the most colloquial way, talk about Mediterranean cuisine. I, I, it's a, that's a catch term. I like to refer to the cooking of Morocco, specifically the dishes. If they're going to make a tagine, for example, you know, let's talk about that. What, what style, what, flavors. Let's just talk about what's actually being prepared. I would imagine that's how you as a chef also approach things. 100% mate. Like I, I, yeah, like the, the, I think 
first and foremost, as you were saying that, I'm my my head is going absolutely insane about this term bioactives because it's something that I've heard of, I've read probably from you to be honest, and I haven't <laughs> truly, you know, I guess uh, dissected it too much. But yeah, like I think for me in this space, I'm always looking at flavor first, and it just mm-hmm. so happens that flavor is associated with you know, polyphenols and nutrient density. So that's what I think for me my marker is when I combine ingredients and look at individual ingredients, ones that are grown in certain ways in certain regions. Uh, In some ways you look at a sommelier and you look at their way that they um, are able to understand the soil of the grapes and the varieties. Mm -hmm. Same Mm -hmm. thing for me when I look at soil regions where certain – you know, foods are grown. I go, okay, well, based on what I know of that soil um, from the research that I've seen being carried out, I can understand it's got a pretty accurate understanding of either nutrient density or it may un- unfortunately have metals in the soil or more commonly have metals in the soil. So I have to be more careful that type of foods I, that I get from there. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a whole other conversation but um for me i always look at nutrient density through the lens of flavor and that's how i kind of get all these wins from the polyphenols so whilst we're talking about that uh, a bioactive is a term of or a type of polyphenol themselves or like talk me more about these and and these bioactives and i've got so many questions on this if you're saying that we have these micronutrients that then switch on due to like some sort of enzyme activity? How does it work? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, uh, the foods that we eat, let's call let's just look at plants for a second. Yeah, nice. Um, uh, they are uh, filled with um, water. They're filled with fiber. They're filled with vitamins and minerals. Okay. Those are the things that people are often familiar with. They can be filled with fats. They can be filled with proteins. You know, these are the, 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 the tools in a toolbox that nutritionists have been talking about for a long time. But if you take a look at something like a red bell pepper, okay, uh, or tomato, as we talked about earlier, or guava, uh, you're talking about uh, a food that has tens of thousands of other very, very small chemicals, many of which have not yet been fully identified or studied yet. But we've identified some of these, and they're called bioactives, mostly because they are active in our body's biological systems, meaning... If you were to take a bioactive like a lycopene, as we just talked about from a tomato, and put it into a Petri dish containing human cells, the lycopene will find its way like a homing missile to a part of the cell, usually a receptor. So it's a little receiving dish, a radar dish on the cell. And it will, like a lock, a key fitting into a lock, turn on um, some function inside the cell that before the lycopene exposure wasn't doing it. After you expose it to lycopene, now the cell will start to behave and become active in a different way. So this is a substance from a food that interacts with the biology of our cells and turns on and makes a cell function and become active in ways that it wasn't before it it became exposed to the, the substance. So bioactive is just simply that. It's a very broad term tens of thousands of bioactives. So the um, polyphenol, uh, the catechin uh, in green tea, EGCG, that's a bioactive. The lycopene in a tomato is a bioactive. The limonene in the lemon um, or the rosmarinic acid in uh, the herb rosemary, all bioactives. It's a kind of a generalized term. Now you take the individual one, rosmarinic acid, rosemary. Now we study it to figure out exactly what it does. What is that type of activity that it that it stimulates now we can study that and get into the weeds this is so cool so you're telling me there's a bioactive responsible oh well i guess there's a more, more let me reword that there's each bioactive has the responsibility of a particular action within a cell pretty much and and some of them are redundant and some of them do multiple things so um Mother Nature is very smart, uh, Dan. She usually gave every bioactive a couple of different job descriptions. Some of them may be stimulating our circulation so that we have better blood flow. Some of them may be um, to stimulate our body's stem cells so that it helps us regenerate our organs from the inside out. Some of them may be to stimulate our gut microbiome to help 
um, right-size the community, the, the ecosystem in our gut. Some of them might be to protect our DNA, or some of them might be to stimulate our immune system, or on the other hand, maybe to calm our, our immune system for inflammation. Uh, uh, so, uh, so these are all the different types of activity that I write about in my book, ETB Disease, uh, and there are many other functions as well, metabolism, uh, activating fat, uh, burning down harmful fat, growing nerves. I mean, there's a m- multitude of these uh, great functions uh, that, um, uh, and, and by the way, drug companies uh, aspire, pharmaceuticals aspire to do something similar. I'll give you a great example, beets, right? So the beet is a root. Um, you can eat the leaves. Uh, it's not a very attractive looking root when you see it in the market. It's kind of a dirty looking dark thing. Uh you peel it, you, wa- you wash it, you peel it, and you've got this beautiful, you know, um, dark, ruby, red, purplish looking thing. It Not only does it have betanin, which is an anti-angiogenic, cancer-starving bioactive, but it actually contains a lot of natural nitrogen, which is, uh, you know, an, 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 uh, an atom uh, that it absorbs from the soil. Now, um, the betanin, when you eat, so when you eat a beet, you get the betanin. It does things to your cell, activates it, protects you from cancer um, uh, and, and other infl- inflammatory processes. But the um, nitrogen, if you chew a beet uh, uh, when you're eating it, which is why it has to taste good, you want to want to savor it. The microbiome, the gut, healthy gut bacteria on our tongue that lives in on in the crevices of our tongue. That bacteria will uh, help to change the natural nitrogen, this uh, this atom the, from the soil in the beet that it has a lot of. It'll change it into a form that when we swallow that bacteria-transformed nitrogen, it, it is in a form that gets absorbed into our bloodstream and it turns into nitric oxide. So what does nitric oxide do? It didn't come from the beet, by the way. That just the nitrogen came from the beet. Our bacteria turned it into nitric oxide into our blood. Now, nitric oxide dilates our blood vessels, lowers our blood pressure. If you lower your blood pressure by um, one millimeter of mercury, that's the top number of, of a blood pressure, 120 over 80, like from 120 to 119, you decrease your risk of stroke by 5%. Okay, that's that's how powerful even a slight lowering is. Uh, eating, you know, a, a, a cup of beets will help you lower your blood pressure in, into a better into a better uh, in, in, into safer levels. It can last for a couple of hours. Now, this uh, the nitric oxide that comes from the beets that your bacteria and your tongue produced also stimulates stem cells so you can start to renew and regenerate parts of your organs internally that need to be freshened up. Now, I told you that drug companies aspire to this. Well, there's a medicine called Viagra that many people have heard of. Sildenafil is actually the generic term. And what does that do? It's used to treat erectile dysfunction uh, uh, to improve libido. And how does it work? It actually is a medicine that causes your body to produce nitric oxide um, as a pharmaceutical, and that's actually how you get erections, all right? Now, think about what I just said. Eating a beet doesn't require a a pharmaceutical, can give you your body the net effect the same sort of way without having to resort to a prescription uh, and and at, at much safer levels. So this is an example of how you know, when you talk about food as medicine, for me as a medical doctor who's been involved with drug development as well, biotechnology, I'm actually able to kind of walk uh, walk from one side of the of the of the fence to the other to say, well, okay, how do we study what these foods do? Is there some similar correlate in medicine? And so then, can we learn something more about the food? And then looking back at the medicine, is there something that we can actually gain more of just by eating more food? This is so fascinating. I love the idea of the, you know, the benefit of the beet uh, is accompanied by an, an activation takes place to build up that nitric oxide. That's so cool. Because we do hear about like, you know, for example, beets are good for your heart and all those kind of things in your cardiovascular system. And similarly, we have other, you know, wonderful plants that do wonderful things for us. But I've, I've just never kind of seen, like you've always seen them as micronutrients mm-hmm. and, and not the passage of play that takes place within the cell by these awesome bioactives um mate can you just because i'm so interested do you have another one <laughs> do you have another awesome bioactive example 
Oh yeah. Uh, okay. Um, okay. Here's one. Uh, 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 I'm, I'm going to try to. I'm going to try to uh, tell you. Um, well, this is actually a, a really interesting one. Uh, uh, green tea actually contains a bioactive called EGCG. It's a polyphenol. Every, a lot of people have heard about it. There's supplements that are made on it. Yeah. Um, that. EGCG, this catechin, this poly, this polyphenol, actually has been studied time and time and again, and I've done it myself, and many, many hundreds of other researchers have verified this, actually can cut off the blood supply uh, for cancer because we're, you know, we're all growing cancers in our body all the time, even when we're kids, because the human body is 40 trillion cells that have to divide and multiply all the time. And when you actually multiply, if you all it takes us for one or two mistakes in dividing and, you know, the copy paste part of it, all it takes for a couple of errors to occur. And, and presto, you've got a little cancer. But these microscopic cancers, which are found in our body from the time we're born to our very last breath, um, uh, are, are due to DNA mistakes, mistakes in copying our cells when we're duplicating them. By the way, do you know how many mistakes are made in your DNA every single day in copying? Take a guess. Jeez. Oh, I mean, for the average person, how many? Yeah. Average person, um, I'm going to say a million. Not quite a million. I will tell you, it's, t- this, it's been studied, which is remarkable. The average human walking around the street or listening to this podcast has uh, their body makes 10,000 genetic mistakes every single day. Every 24 hours, 10,000 mistakes. Each of those mistakes can turn into a microscopic cancer. Fortunately, they don't, but every now and then a few will actually stick around as a little microscopic cancer. And the only reason that the cancer doesn't grow up to kill you is because it doesn't have a blood supply, so it can't grow, no oxygen, no nutrients. And then your immune system will find it and wipe it out so that like a pimple – You'll, it'll never bother you. You'll, you won't even know it's there, right? Like how many of us have little pimples that fall around, follow, come up in, on our skin? And we don't even, it doesn't bother us. So you can't see, see it and, and, they, and your body takes care of it um, mostly automatically. So green tea has this polyphenol called EGCG that actually has been studied and it cuts off the blood supply to prevent microscopic cancers from growing, uh, growing up because they they're not fed. Starving a cancer by cutting off its blood supply. I gave a TED talk on this a few years ago. Uh, anybody who wants to get more details on this, so that process is called anti-angiogenesis. Anti meaning against angiogenesis is how the body grows blood vessels, but anti-angiogenesis specifically is directed to prevent cancers from growing their own blood supply. Now, there are about a dozen drugs that can cost up to $100,000 a year to be treated with that are infused into your body. Some of them you take as a pill. And many of them have, you know, some, the usual, they're they're safer than chemo uh, for cancer, but they all have their own side effects as well. And they're very expensive. And you got to go to the hospital to have them infused or have a, a prescription made. And you know what? It turns out that Mother Nature put the equivalent stuff that can actually achieve something similar in, into a tea leaf. And that's what's amazing to me. And then you'd want to say, all right, well, so what kind of, what kind of tea is actually better? So we've studied side by side um, Sencha from Japan, uh, Jasmine uh, green uh, tea, uh, Jasmine ball, pearl ball green tea from China. We've studied Earl Grey from England. You know, it's really amazing. You can actually you because when you study drugs you can do this side by side when you study food you can do the same thing or at least that's how i study food as medicine i literally study and you can compare it to medicines and in many cases you can see what's in a food can uh, stand up head to head side to side with the same activity as a medicine you would have only it's a lot safer a lot cheaper and um, a lot more delicious yeah which is <laughs> always a win in my motivating uh you know, decision making. <laughs> you know, ultimately, this is fascinating. This is so good. So, if we take that same principle and apply it to, say, let's say, um, animal-based produce, so dairy, eggs, uh, you know, chicken, beef. Do we see bioactives in those ingredients as well? Yeah. Well, okay. So, you know, it's 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 it is. 
clear from all the research that's been done that eating plant-based whole foods, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, nuts, seeds, and legumes, healthy oils, all better for you, uh, uh, herbs and spices, okay? That's clear, and there's an amazing amount of research uh, in that. It's not, uh, and that's de rigueur to say that you should be eating plant-based foods. Like that's almost, uh, it's almost, uh, it's almost against the religion of health to be able to say anything else. But the truth is, as a researcher, when I've looked at seafood, there's mm-hmm. omega-3 fatty acids in fish that come from the uh, uh, plankton and algae that, uh, that they eat. Um, at the end of the day, I suppose it does come from a plant. Um, but here's an amazing thing in seafood, for example, there are, um, um, peptides, proteins in sea bass uh, that actually speed up wound healing, which is kind of crazy, even after you cook it, which is even more remarkable. Uh, So this is actually um, research that's been done. Uh, uh, Squid, uh, the rainbow squid is is very popular in Japanese um, uh, squid dishes. Uh, That rainbow squid has an anti-angiogenic property, cancer-starving property um, that's actually found in its flesh. You know, if you, if you taste the, f- the flesh of squid, it has very little, it appears to have very little substance, not that much taste even. Um, but actually this this anti-androgenic to cancer-starving substance in there. All right, let's talk about squid. What about squid ink, cuttlefish ink, octopus ink? Now, most of the black ink food that we have, black pasta is not really from squid, it's from cuttlefish, packed, rich, with a stem cell protecting substance that's also anti-angiogenic, cancer-starving. I love squid ink, man. I, I love it in yeah. rice. I love it in pasta. I, the other day, by the way, I was thinking of you, Dan. I, I I came home late from a trip I was on, and I was just hungry. It was like ten thirty at night. I was hungry, but it was late, and I didn't want to get hassled. I didn't want to go do takeout or carry in or whatever delivery. So I went, you know what I did? I went to my pantry, opened it up, and and this is this is how I naturally do this. I've been doing it since medical school. I just looked at what I had in the pantry. I took out some sardines. I took out some tomato paste and anchovy paste. I had some garlic. I had a red onion. I, I found some uh, squid ink or, or cuttlefish ink, black pasta, and, um, uh, and uh, I found a little jar of capers, uh, salt-packed capers. I just uh, boiled the, the, I boiled up some pasta while I was boiling the pasta. I, I cut up the onions, I cut up some garlic. I broke, just took a fork and I broke some tin sardines into a pan with a little bit of olive oil, added some capers, um, I squeezed in a little bit of tomato paste, a little anchovy paste, mix it all together. Pasta was done al dente. I just drained it and put it right into the pan, stirred it around to mix it up. And I just had like the most amazing dinner and it was all filled with health activating stuff dude i want to tell you i'm usually the one that does the description of the meals on this show and now i know what it's like to be on the other side (laughs) (laughs) i cannot tell you like i've genuinely (laughs) i was already hungry before our session right i was already hungry before our discussion and i'm like fuck i really want but i've got (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's, it's marathon week. I'm having pasta anyway, but I'm like, oh, I really want pasta. <laughs> right well, well, and then, you know, if I had had a little bit more time, I would have actually very easily taken a day or a couple day old loaf of bread that I had around. Oof. I could have made my own breadcrumbs. I could have sauteed the breadcrumbs in some of the olive oil that was packed around the sardines uh, just to crisp it up. And then you've got these little tiny little crunchy bits. And then at the end of the, at the end of it, I would have just sprinkled it right into the pasta. You know, you don't need cheese. You just need these little crunchy bits to light up this amazing uh, healthy dish. And, and my point is it took me all of 15 minutes to make it. Yep. That is crazy. Exactly. You're hundred percent, mate. You used your time efficiently you boiled, you put the first thing on first, it's going to take the longest, boil the pasta mm-hmm. and you create the sauce in that time. So you're not wasting any time waiting for one thing to cook whilst you're waiting for the next thing and, and so on and so forth. In the time of 15 minutes, you created a nutrient dense, bioactive, health boosting, chronic disease preventing meal that most importantly for, you know, increasing the occurrence of this dish tasted absolutely delicious. So, oh yeah, oh yeah. No, it, it's it's a it's and and you know like I think that what what my mission in life is as a doctor and a scientist and as an author, I want people to realize that you can love your food and love your health at the same time. 
And what it, it takes is kind of a mindset, not to be afraid of food. You know, so much of healthy food seems like it's filled with fear, ga- guilt, and shame. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. I think we should be leaning into our healthy food. You know, you should just find the things that you love, pick out the things that are super healthy, and then dive into it deeper. Like, go for it. And because in, with the internet, if you see an ingredient you don't really know how to cook with, uh, but could be healthy, um, like a kumquat, for example, you know, most people don't know how to cook with a kumquat. What would you do with it? Well, you know, you can now. Click in kumquat recipe, find your favorite recipe website and just click it and and click video. And then you'll actually watch somebody make it while they're explaining to you what's in it. That makes almost any ingredient doable. Mate, far out. You just gave me the asset for today's podcast episode. You also gave me the inspiration along with everyone else listening in for the next meal and snack. So 100%. I also love the fact that... I love the surprise I get with people when I tell them they can eat a kumquat whole because they look at it, it looks like a tiny mandarin or orange. Right. Like, no, I don't have to peel the skin. No, just 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 bite into it and wait for that beautiful flavor encapsulation to take place. Oh man, I feel like I'm talking to not a scientist, a researcher, nor a doctor, and just a foodie, <laughs> which you are. We, that, we, <laughs> yeah. No. Listen, I I I and when I you know, before the pandemic, I traveled so widely. Uh, I have in my Rolodex and my phone notes that I take of the restaurants that I've eaten at the regions I've traveled to the things that I, you know, when, when I, when I used to get to a medical conference, you know, to give a, give a speech or a lecture or, or present some research data, you know, a lot of people check it in their hotel and then they, you know, go off into the meeting. I check into my hotel. I used to anyway, and I would go straight to, the city market, the fresh market, you know, whether it's in Munich, whether it's in Athens, Greece, or, you know, wherever it is, or in Italy, that's, I would head straight there. That'd be the, my first stop. And in fact, I'd plan my trip so that I arrive with enough time. So I'm not rushing around too much. I get to actually literally imbibe uh, and, and consume a little bit about like what the, what this area is about, what they're serving, what's fresh and what's seasonal. And, and I, I'm always surprised and delighted by something I actually find there. And so I do, I, I do think that if you find, uh, food enjoyable, now there's a reason to enjoy it even more because it can another dimension that lights up your life. And if you're somebody who, you know, has just been really treating food as kind of a functionality, I just got to get through it three times a day, whatever. What I would say is that, you know, if you if you listen to the community around you that's growing up, they're beginning to really not just have foodies, but I think foodies, this is another dimension of foodie, foodieism, if, it, if that's a term, which is really now beginning to uh, explore yet a, yet a new dimension, which is how the food that tastes great has been, is being discovered by researchers like me and others to actually be able to light up your body's health defenses as well. And that's what I read about in my book, Eat to Beat Disease. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that, mate. I feel like this is my thing, right? I don't want to be someone to tell people what they should be having based like I it's based on science but I want people to be inspired by flavor right your book is all about how people can be inspired to truly understand how they can actually avoid um, medicine you know in their best dealings by eating the right foods so I you know we look at the biggest chronic diseases that do kill us right Mm -hmm. And, and and it is now evidently backed that we know that the lifestyle factors that we play are all have a major role in them, whether it be diabetes, cardiovascular disease, you know, the relationship with Alzheimer's, um, it's just common. So in your book, mate, like I want to, you know, I want people to go purchase it if they have not already. I'm sure most of them have actually read the book, but in your dealings, in your research, what was it that was something that was so obvious that you hadn't even discovered yourself, but realized, like, how did people not know this? Oh, I'll tell you, I, I, there's so many examples in my book. I'll give you a really, uh, one that should be uh, uh, close to you, having come from the part of the world you're, you're originally from. So the kiwi, right, which originally came from southern China and then was transplanted over to New Zealand and then became more popular in sort of the, the, the Asia-Pacific whole basin, and now is all around the world. It's a, it's a kind of a, a cryptic-looking thing, a little... Uh, you know, um, 
uh, a little brown hairy thing you cut open and then you, you don't appreciate its beauty until you cut it open it's, it's got to see their golden or green emerald green um, look to it it's slightly juicy it's sweet but not not uh, cloyingly sweet and it's got a little kind of interesting crunchy fibery thing and yet, yet you don't feel like it doesn't gum up your mouth it doesn't uh, you, you don't taste the fiber in it at all and yet it's an incredible source of fiber it's got a lot of vitamin c in it which is an antioxidant and can protect your dna and it also feeds your microbiome which is our one of our body's health defense systems is our gut bacteria right and so here is something that you could eat for breakfast you can pile them up on your on your counter you don't have to refrigerate them uh just take one cut it open in the morning all you need is a, a is a is a knife and a spoon and you got yourself this little delicious thing for breakfast super simple now here's what the research found and and i write about this in my book which is kind of crazy um uh it was found that um if you were to eat one kiwi a day only one and then uh, take a sample of your blood after, after you're done eating it and measure how much eating that kiwi was able to protect your DNA. You could subject your blood to some harmful oxidants, you know, um, it's kind of like, it's like the damage you get from the environment. And one kiwi a day reduces the damage to your DNA by 60%. One kiwi will do that by 60%. All right. Now, if you ate three kiwis, I, I have to say it's very rare that I would eat three kiwis at a sitting. But but the researchers tested this. If you ate three kiwis, not only would it protect the damage, it would rebuild damaged DNA, DNA that was already damaged. You'd build it back by 60 percent. Who would have thunk that? Right now, that now other researchers looking at kiwi found that like that's not obvious. Other researchers found that um, if you were to eat one kiwi. Um, uh, that, and you were to look in your gut through your poop and actually measure the bacteria, the bacteria colonies in your poop, you would actually find that in 24 hours after eating one kiwi, your gut bacteria starts to change to a healthier neighborhood, a healthier community, just one in 24 hours. By four days, you've actually changed two different families of bacteria all towards a healthier community. And so, this is something that is also so not obvious. That's something that is so inert looking. If you don't cut that kiwi open, you know, you might, yeah, you might play catch with it, but you won't do much with it. And, you know, you open it up and it's just a simple thing you scoop out. But in your body, this is where this food and these bioactives light up your health defenses. That was not obvious to me, but I think it's really quite amazing. That's really cool. That is really cool. Now, banking uh, my mathematical abilities on that 60% and converting it to the average, you're talking 6,000 mistakes that we avoid based on that initial 60%, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah. And then to be able to rebuild that back up based on three kiwis, look, I can easily find an excuse to eat three kiwis a day. I love kiwi fruit. It's uh, Mm -hmm. a beautiful little pocket of wins when you uh, get a lovely little texture inside too. So um, that's, that is unbelievable. I've been blown away by this, this, bioactives, if you will, my man. Um, one question I did have for you, I've noticed in a lot of the readings, I think you've actually had this on your blog, mm-hmm. frozen or even canned veggies. Where does Dr. William Lee lie on this in terms of good for you and in preventing disease? Okay, yeah, how's that work? You know, I think it all depends on what kind of food you're talking about and, and who's doing it. I mean, who's making it for you? So, you know, they're okay. So what we're talking about is fresh versus, um, uh, frozen or can, right? So what I always tell people is, you know, if you get something fresh, that's awesome. It's the best of all possible, uh, scenarios, eat it fresh if you can, but you know, you can't always get the same fresh food all year long or from based on where you live. Um, you might not even be able to get it fresh even when it's in season. Um, Look, fish, uh, uh, fish, if you don't live along in the, on the coast, you're, the fish that you might be able to get um, has, was not just, it didn't just come out of the sea. So here's the thing to know. If you can get it fresh, eat it fresh. It's wonderful. But uh, if you get, have things, vegetables, for example, and fish that are flash frozen, um, uh, 
that can be just fine because by flash freezing, you lock in all those micronutrients, you lock in all the bioactives as well. So, um, I mean, think about it this way. You flash freeze broccoli. It's picked from the, uh, from the fields. It's immediately brought within an hour or two to a flash freezing facility and, and it locks in everything that is that that's fresh. Compare that to in a regular grocery store, um, you know, broccoli that was grown in California that's got to be shipped up to Massachusetts or Maine. That thing is sitting on a truck or a train or maybe an airplane and it's flying over there or driving over there. It's a couple of days old by the time it looks like it's in the fresh part of the store, right? So that, that makes a difference. And so the frozen one might actually have all the stuff locked in. Same thing can be said about fish. Flash frozen fish that's frozen on the boat, for example, man, that could be really, really fresh. You lock in a lot of the good, healthy oils, omega-3s, and some of the other micronutrients that are found in, in seafood. Um, so I would say, um, now, now if, if you, but it has to be done the right way. It has to be uh, flash frozen in the right way. Cans, you know, um, a, a lot of people, uh, let's call it disrespect the ultra processing food industry by saying, oh, if it's in a can, it can't be that good. You know, canning itself has is is no uh, guarantee of poor quality. In fact, if you take a look at the some of the most storied food cultures in the world, in Asia, um, in Italy, in France, in Portugal, in Spain, and in Greece, tinned or canned foods actually are a delicacy, right? Like uh, a lot of people, I mentioned more sardines a little, a little bit earlier, but tinned fish, I mean, is actually more expensive in some in, in some places in Spain and south of France than actually fresh fishes um, because of the care that's been taken in picking the fish, um, uh, marinating the fish, packing the fish and canning it. And back in the day, when it wasn't that easy to get fish all year long, that was the best way to actually preserve a fresh catch. And research has shown that you can also get great value from that. Beans are another great example. Legumes, great if it's actually um, uh, found in, in cans. Now, not every... I, you know, there's some things that are, are totally fine and others that are uh, better dried, you know, uh, as well. So I think it depends on it. There's again, this desire to overly, uh, desire to simplify, to make everything black or white, yes or no good or evil. You know, that's not what it, that's that where it's at when it comes to food. It's the nuances, the, the God literally is in the details. And, and so um, and that's really what I try to put out in terms of my content online and what I wrote about my book is to try to give people some, uh, try to be a compass point for people to, to just get, a, get them to head in the right direction. Um, you don't need to be afraid of canned food or, or, or uh, frozen food. What you should do, by the way, regardless if you're getting packaged food in a, in a bag or a tin or a can, do pick it up. Do look at the ingredient list. Do notice if there's a lot of chemicals you can't pronounce easily. Those are warning signs. Those are the red flags because they've been uh, treated and, and contain a lot of chemicals. That would not be the type of frozen or canned or packaged food that I would recommend. Yeah, I love that, mate. If you can absolutely understand where you can, you know, pronounce, oh, mate, that's a bit, that was a big thing in, for me building my products. Like, I want to be able to actually have people understand the foods, uh, the ingredients involved. So, I'm really glad you mentioned that, mate. That's massive. Dr. Lee, <laughs> we, uh, I'm so conscious of your time. Um, and I know we've, we're about to run over. So, I, as I said to you before we started, I really wanted to build a base of understanding of who Dr. Lee is. He's profound information and research and ultimately like the side of you about food that people probably don't obviously get to hear. So I'm really stoked you got that. And as a result, I'm going to have to get you back on at some point. So unfortunately for you, you're going to have to hang out with me again uh, and we can talk all things food. But my man, I, I, cannot, I can't tell you how cool it is to have you on the show. I'm really stoked that people are going to learn more about you from a you know audio perspective. But also, if you have been thinking about picking up the book, never heard of the book for some reason, or you're uh, looking for a present for somebody, go get Eat to Beat Disease. It's a huge bestseller. <laughs> and uh, follow Dr. Lee as well on Instagram. Dr. Lee, what's the what's the best handle for you, mate? 
Oh, so you can find me on my website at uh, www.drdrwilliamlee.com, drwilliamlee, drwilliamlee.com, and my handle's at drwilliamlee. Um, you know, one of the things that actually people might find really interesting is I periodically do free masterclasses, and um, I do them about every other month, and um, I talk about uh, what's new in research and what do people need to know? And I talk about the fundamentals of how to approach food and about approach health. I'm going to be doing one, uh, you know, sort of one more towards the end of the year with the idea of, you know, getting people to kind of wrap up the year, you know, keep their health, build their health, get ready for the next what's around the corner. Um, and so that's a lot of fun. Come to my website. You can find out when I'm going to do it, sign up for it and uh, be a lot of fun uh, uh, to, um, uh, to, to come back on your show again. Yeah, for sure. So that's a head to your website. Obviously you can sign up for it. Is there a newsletter they can sign up for too, just to keep up yeah, with everything going on? Ab- ab- or- absolutely. Come to my website, sign up for my newsletter. Um, I'm putting out content, constantly there's there's so much news that is coming out this information then what i try to do for your listeners is i try to be that kind of honest filter uh because there's so much stuff out there i i really try to uh, take a look at the things that i think it's sort of the news you can use that actually is based on science that you can trust and i try to actually release that kind of information because, and, and to try to make it as pro- as practical as possible. So I, I, I'd love to actually have your uh, listeners uh, uh, become part of my tribe. And, uh, you know, we're all this together. 100%, mate. I know they're going to love you as well, man. So as I say, guys, go follow him up. Hit him up in his newsletter as well. We've got, like, I love following you for your tidbits. Also getting a little, uh, love little update when you're on Dr. Oz or some sort of epic uh, media option as well, my man. So I look forward to having you back on. I look forward to having you in the city, mate. You and I get to cook or do something actually in person. That's going to be a wonderful time as well. You know what would be what would be great, uh, Dan? We should plan something to cook together, and we can um, combine our uh, our our knowledge uh, to do something fun. Just to show at the end of the day how easy it is to do something that is so amazingly tasty and so amazingly healthy. 120,000%. That'd be so awesome. Maybe do, uh, like we just did that piece for Zoe. We just hang out and see if we can do something like that as well. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Love to do it. Well, mate, let's, um, as I said, it's an absolute honor. I look forward to actually hanging out in person and doing that cook up. Uh, but on behalf of the Epic Table listeners, thank you for being a part of this awesome podcast. Thanks very much, Dan. <laughs>